Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. The host, Victor Davis Hansen, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. I am in kind of gray and cold Milford, Connecticut. Victor is on the East Coast, too, today. It's rare that we're in the same time zone when we when we talk. Victor, maybe you're lucky you're not back out in California where where. Uh, what do they call it now? The Pineapple Express. Some. Um, I don't know. I'm. I'm trying deluge to find out if I. Coming. I'm trying to find out, Jack, if I have a house. A last time somebody took a picture of it, I couldn't see it. It's under twenty feet of snow. Staggering. So staggering. I'm just trying to remember if scissor trusses are very strong. That's what it has on it. Yeah. <laughs> so well. anyway, today I I had to go to the East Coast to speak. And I'm doing complicated mathematical formulas of the weight of Sierra snow per square foot versus what I remember the roof was gauged right. at. Anyway, everybody. Well, you're, you're hope hope St. Joseph uh, will be protecting you. Okay, of the snow. Well, St. Joseph, patron saint of homes, so you know we'll give him the uh, give him the uh, duty here to take care of your your Casa de Joseph. Okay, yeah, <laughs> Jose. So uh, anyway, all that all that said, Victor, there's so much to talk about. We're going to start with your home turf. By by the way, if I had to title the show, I think I'd call it the People's Republic of Palo Alto because there's so much happening yeah. in Stanford, this uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Then we've got. Uh, Fauci versus uh, uh, Robert Redfield to talk about. So let's let we'll start off with things Stanford, and we'll we'll get to that right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, two things. I hate to lump them together because they're, they're different, but they are Stanford related. Uh, so the first is a kind of a topic we've touched on more than touched on before. Uh, Stanford Review, that's the conservative alternative paper uh, uh, on campus, has a piece out uh, uh, looking at the uh, the racial component of the new class and white students are 20% of the of the Stanford incoming uh, class down from 40% in um, uh, 2016. So there is some version of affirmative action. Of course, no one, none of these institutions claim they're engaged in affirmative action, but there clearly is. So it's going on at Stanford. The other Stanford thing is news that happened from late last week. I think it was Thursday or Friday. <clears throat> that um, Stanford Law Equity Dean by the name of Tyrion Steinbach, along with Stanford Law students, suppressed a talk uh, from Fifth Circuit Federal Judge Kyle Duncan, invited there on behalf of the Federalist Society to talk about COVID and guns and some other topics. But in a, a typical thing we see now on college campuses, shouted down, forbidden to talk. The dean talked and gave a five-minute, six-minute rant about DEI and how dangerous his this judge's policies were, how threatened everyone was. I'm for free speech, except not for this guy. Just the latest in one of these episodes, Victor. Uh, you know, Stanford, uh, didn't Stanford, wasn't there some effort recently? I think we talked about some free speech um, a statement came out of Stanford, but damn, it looks like it's the Citadel for suppressing speech. So, Victor, two Stanford stories. Go at me whatever way you prefer. Okay. So, the first one, I've written about that, and the Stanford announced that this incoming class of 2026 uh, will be 22% white, even though the white, quote-unquote, white population of the United States, and I say the United States because it's it brags that it's a national university, and not a local university. So it's 22% versus about 67 versus 80%. So it's almost a quarter. They are deliberately, uh, they're either saying that the white applicant pool is mediocre now, or they're deliberately uh, discriminating against it because they, not me, not Jack, not you listening, but they follow something called proportional representation. Remember that, that if it's not proportionally represented, it being the demographic in question, then there has to be disparate impact. In other words, it doesn't matter if there's bias or cause, the impact is not fair, it's disparate. And therefore, you have to make corrections. So according to their own theories, Somebody did something wrong. You don't have to prove it, but the 67% didn't get the 67% representation. Who did? Well, that doesn't apply. We understand that now because of the way the left has taken over our institutions and doesn't believe in the principles that it jams down our throat. So what you have to do, Jack, if you have 12% African-American and you have a large percentage of mixed race and you have a large percentage of Latinos, and I say mixed race because a lot of people who are Latino or black are not, you know, 100%. So the mixed race is very important. And if the Asian community is suing, and they are, uh, because although they make up 10% of so of the national population, 
based on this university's own criteria, which they have told us are essential until the woke movement, they have been discriminating against Asians by not considering test scores and uh, GPAs the way that they apply them to other groups. So Asians, uh, they're afraid of Asians. Let me put it that way. So if you're going to represent all of these different groups, mixed race, Latinos, Blacks, and and you're going to have more Asians in their population. And by the way, if you la- if you followed Stanford's old uh, standards, there'd be about 40% Asians. And remember, when we say Asians, we're not talking anymore about people from the uh, what we used to call the so-called racist term Orient. And I've said before, it's not a racist uh, term. It's just a Latin word for uh, the rising of the sun versus the occident, the occident, occidens, the setting of the sun. People who lived where the sun rose. But anyway, it's no longer confined to Japanese or Chinese or even Southeast Asians. It, it includes the entire subcontinent of India and that huge expatriate community in the United States. But anyway. So that's what they're doing, and it gets a little bit more interesting than that because out of that 22%, you have to get, you know, half, I think it's 52% are women of the class on average, if that applied to the white 22. So now you have 11% white males. But most of the athletes, not all of them, but most of the athletes uh, in all of these aggregate sports, soccer, lacrosse, all of them, they tend to be white males. I mean, African-Americans dominate maybe in football and in basketball, but in baseball. And And, and not necessarily Americans, uh, though. No, yes, not necessarily Americans. So then you're getting into the legacies as well. These are people who have a long relationship with Stanford, not just the donors. These are people who are professors. These are people who or deans. These are people who used to be the former provost, and they have children that they want uh, extra consideration. Then you have the donors. And the word on the Pawaldo Street is if your child is at Castellet or, or Sacred Heart or Menlo School or Harker School, and they have the requisite criteria that used to get you in, IEs 4.0, and a very good SAT score, you're not going to get in unless you donate somewhere between 10 and $12 million. That's a fact. They won't will deny that, but that is pretty clear. So when you put donors and legacies and athletes, and you're down to 22%, and then you get rid of over half, you're down to, say, 10%. There is no room whatsoever for your proverbial white male super kid with no connections or money. What I mean is if you're listening and you're a young white male somewhere in southern Illinois or, I don't know, in the the badlands of Montana or Wyoming and you have a perfect SAT and you have a 4.5 with AP and you're an Eagle Scout and you've done you're not going to get into Stanford. Now, that's probably a gift because it's way overpriced and you're not going to learn anything when you get here because the curriculum has been hijacked and watered down but that's what it is it's a race and i think they know it and we're going to, and that's why they've gotten rid of the sat because they they're trying to 
they're at a scene of the murder, Jack, and they're trying to get rid of the murder weapon. And the murder weapon is the SAT, because when the Supreme Court hands down, you cannot use criteria and then exclude people on the basis of race. you got to get rid of the evidence. So now they're saying you don't have to take the SAT, and we don't, we're going to look at GPA, but there's other intangibles, work experience, life experience, diversity, all of these other things that we can subjectively an- analyze. And we'll see how it goes, but what Stanford is doing, of course, is they're they are making a big gamble, Jack, and that they're making two big gambles. Gamble one is they're saying to their constituencies in the Bay Area, you may have a startup worth a billion dollars. You may have a kid that's a whiz kid. You may have known us, but there's not enough room for all of you because there isn't. So we're going to have to let you go. You can't do it. Sorry. That's the one um, gamble they're making. And then if they're letting in a lot of students under these racial rubrics, it's not my standards that they have tossed out. It's not yours. It's not the listeners. It's their own. And so if we're talking 2010, Stanford was telling the world, we reject 60 to 70 percent of perfect SAT scores because we are the hardest university in the country or the world to get into because we demand academic excellence. Now, even then they didn't, but that's what they applied to so-called white people. So now you're going to throw that out. And that's not the end of it. As I said earlier, that's the beginning of it, because then when you bring students in that haven't met your own criteria of what a first class research global university should be, then what do you do, Jack? You either can do two things. You can water down the content or you can change the grade or you can do both, actually. And they're doing both. If you look at the syllabus and the reading list and the grading patterns, and if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to do that, that means you're some old fuddy-duddy white guy and you say, you know what? There's standards and I'm not going to change. And if I'm teaching humanities of the Western world, we're going to read Homer and then we're going to read Virgil and then we're going to read Boethius, and then we're going to read Dante, and then Shakespeare in our first, and we're going to, we're going to, okay, but that was geared for a different student body that had different incoming criteria, and this one doesn't. So when you start applying your quote-unquote standards, you're going to give grades disproportionately to people who might not have got on in before, therefore you're a racist. So what I'm basically saying, Stanford is now pledged to make admissions synonymous with graduation. They'll do whatever they can to make sure that people graduate so there's not a pattern of quote-unquote systemic racism. And this is going to already have enormous effects. It's very expensive to get in, and most of the students that are getting in that wouldn't have got in are getting in on fellowships and scholarships. And so uh, we all are via the federal government to some extent, and the tax uh, exemptions that Stanford enjoys is a quote-unquote nonprofit, which we subsidize. We're subsidizing a racist policy where we're looking at people's color of their skin rather than the excellence of their applications. As far as the other one, at the, the law school, we had a federal judge speak and the Stanford law students started to hector him. And they had some pretty obscene um, signs, as you know, Jack. Right. 
and they were really awful. And they were trying to uh, intimidate him. And as speaking as someone who's been through this, I was at the University of Oregon once when speaking on immigration, when a lot of uh, the Chicano studies students came in, jammed all the front seats and took posters and waved them with signs about me. And I couldn't see the audience. They screamed and yelled. And I looked over at a dean that I had just walked in with and he he left. He wasn't there. In my case, I skipped out of the dinner. And I said, I don't want to be anywhere near anybody at the University of Oregon. Right. But it was. But anyway, this is not news. What is new, the disruption is not new, is that the dean of equity, diversity, equity, inclusion, she hijacked the lecture. Right. So she got in, interrupted the judge, and then started saying, you don't understand what you do enrages these people, i.e. every all of this disruption. All of this obscenity on the signs, I mean, well, they were obscene of these Stanford students. You kind of deserved it. Right. And that's what she was trying to do. And she should be fired immediately. But, of course, she'll be promoted for it by Stanford. And, you know, this is not we've got to remember Stanford University produced Mr. and Mrs. Bankman Freed. And so Mr. Freed, the father of Sam, was a tax lawyer working closely with uh, Elizabeth Warren and Mrs. Bankman Freed. I think her name's Freed. His is Bankman. She was a dark money bundler for Silicon Valley, 65 million. Mine uh, closed the gap, I think it was called, or mine the gap. My point is that they're under investigation for owning property worth $16 million. It may have been transferred May. I'm not making any, uh, I don't have, I haven't heard the court testimony or what if there's going to be indictment, but they were listed as guarantors of certain property. And and I don't think you make that kind of money at Stanford. Apparently, they didn't have the money because there were other people put up. I don't know how you put up twenty five million, which should have been the 10 percent of two hundred and fifty million bomb for Sam Bankman-Fried. But then, of course, right. he's connected. But my point is, both of those professors one who teaches tax law, and I guess the other one teaches realist theory, meaning the ends can justify the means necessary to get them, uh, or are, are themselves in some way deeply involved with their son's uh, ill-doing. And the son right now, as we speak, is living with the parents on campus under house arrest, or I shouldn't say house arrest, on bond. But then, you know, not too long ago, they had this professor, I think her name was Michelle Dauber, Dauber? and she started posting about, remember the Johnny Depp uh, trial? Oh, yeah, the trial. And he, right. he had that very effective, I thought she was brilliant, that Camille Vasquez, that Hispanic lawyer. Yeah, right. She was People really thought good. he was dating her, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. she was very attractive, very well-spoken. Right. And this this. Stanford law professor started tweeting, you know, oh, she's just a pick me girl. And then she started attacking Johnny Depp on publicly. And she said that she hoped that uh, somebody would murder him. And then she said, I hope his corpse uh, is devoured by rats. This was a Stanford law professor. And if you think Jeez. that's weird, you remember the other one uh, at the House Judiciary Committee when they were rushing through the second impeachment they didn't have any special counsel counsel 
Donald Trump would be tried as a private citizen, but they wanted to get it out after January 6th. And they called in, of course, if you want a left-wing person to bend the law and with a veneer of prestige, you go to Stanford Law School. And that Pamela Carlin, I'll never forget it. She was talking about Trump's 13-year-old son. And she said, you know, uh, the Constitution says that there's no titles of nobility. So if President, you know, Trump can call his son Baron, but he can't make him a Baron. <laughs> it was just, it was just crazy. And when you talk about the Federalist Society, because the Federalist Society sponsored this right. last year or 2021, as right before graduation, they circulated this invitation that was kind of fake, but it was meant to be kind of like Babylon B, but it was very realistic. It said the Stanford Federalist Society, you know, wants to invite you to a violent insurrection. It's known as a coup and it's uh, it's going to conflict in every aspect of law. And here's where to assemble sponsored by the federal society. And people believed it. And so that law school has something deeply, deeply, deeply wrong with it is what I'm getting at. And right. this is not the beginning and it's not the end. I have a little connection because uh, with it, because my mother graduated there from law school in 1946. Right. She had gone to the University of Pacific and graduated. Then she went to Stanford and got a second BA and went to the law school. And then I think she was the second woman to be appellate court judge in California. And the first, you know, juvenile, female juvenile judge uh, in Fresno County and Superior Court. But my point is she was on the board of overseers of the law school. And when I was a graduate student there, I used to go over and see her at meetings there. And they were very proud, the overseers. They built a new law school. I think Jerry Ford even came out and mm -hmm. uh, dedicated it in 75, maybe, 76. But it was a normal place. It was a normal left-wing place is what I'm saying. Right. This, is not, this is not it. And all of these people who have graduated from Stanford Law School, except in the last four or five years, have to be utterly shocked by this. You should not give them any money. At all. Right. None, 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 none. It's a force for it's not a force for good. Right. And these students should be these students should be really, you know, to tell the truth, they should be ashamed of themselves. I looked at the tape. Right. And they were yelling and screaming at this federal judge. And then they were having these placards. Finally, the judge had to tell one woman, you you have it upside down, <laughs> your obscenity. <laughs> and then then the diversity person who was kind of either contextualizing them or defending them or egging them on. At that point, she says they can leave. And then they were kind of like lemmings. They, it was all performance art. They, about half of them got up and left. And these are the people who are going to populate Democratic ad administrations from now on for the next 50 years. And uh, they kind of mirror a, an incident from last year at Yale Law School. They, they do. Mirror a, a, a woman who I know she was a judge, but she she was a, 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 the lawyer in a, in a particularly important um a federal case, and she was shouted down by you know the future the future judges and Supreme Court members of America, uh, where where they are suppressing uh, any speech intolerant of any divergent view. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. What was it that 
that very controversial law dean, is her name Gherkin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And she said they were all going to be punished and it was unacceptable. They always say it's unacceptable, right? This is not an institution, you know, it's unacceptable, but they don't, I don't think they did anything to them. The only I mean, thing that can be done uh, or externally, and I don't know how you feel about this, uh, it was it was stated in the Yale case, and some people said, these kids, if you are a graduate of Yale Law School, no judge, they should not be hired as as um, clerks. And as well, you know, I hope they do it with this. You think they'll do it so, with this to apply? Well, that? the same. Yeah, that's that's been uh, some of the reaction um, also. If I may, Victor, just quickly, you know, I'm I'm looking at an account of what happened at Stanford that Ed Whalen. Had has written, and it says five law school administrators were present while this while this happened. And then Steinbach, the the uh, dean, got up, and her speech was written. So this was quite premeditated. It wasn't that she witnessed something and her passions took over, and she you know got up and 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 hijacked the event. She 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 orchestrated it. So yeah, uh, she. I, I know that, you know, you could say, I mean, the ninth court is in San Francisco for the Western states, federal court, and it's the most liberal there is. But Trump did put a few Republican judges on there. So if you said, if the judges said, we don't want to have anybody uh, involved from that law school clerking for us because there were members of the administration there and they either allowed it or they contextualized it, I said, or they agreed with it. And that was contrary to democracy. They're always talking about democracy, but if you have a federal judge and you shout him down, then you're attacking democracy according to their own logic. But more importantly, you can see where this leads, Jack, because the academic legal community is creating a situation in which if you disagree with them, if you're a judge, then you are hurting people and you're endangering their life. They, they just establish that by fit. You know, if a Republican judge said, you know what, if you're for abortion, you're killing babies. And therefore, it's OK for all my supporters to shout down anybody. Uh, but it doesn't go two ways. But my point is, you can see how, what a short distance it is to, from this to Chuck, Chuck Schumer, who at that time, I think, was the minority Senate leader in 2019. Right. We went right before the Supreme Court doors with a mob behind him and said, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, you sowed the wind and you're going to reap the whirlwind and you're not going to know what hits you. That was a direct physical threat. Right. And I couldn't, I remember that when he was pontificating about Tucker the other day, I thought, shame on you. And then more importantly, within a year, there were people protesting out at the Supreme Court justices' homes with the one caveat, if they were conservative. So the left has this monopoly on this violent disruption. And they say, we can go break up, speak uh, lectures at law schools. We can intimidate federal judges when they come to our law school. We can have our senators go out in front of the Supreme Court and scream and yell and threaten two judges by name. We can send our mobs to a restaurant to drive out, you know, Kavanaugh. We can go to their homes. And you know what? If an assassin, assassination person, an assassin shows up, egged on, no doubt, by all this, and, you know, that things happen. And as far as there's a felony, and it is a felony to 
assemble at and I know that because my mom had made some pretty controversial rulings sometimes and there were people upset about it and called her and things like that. It didn't come out to our farm, but my point is that there is a law, federal law, statute says you cannot go to a judge's house for the purpose of intimidating. And when they asked Merrick Garland about that, remember what he said? He said, well, there were already, there were, um, there were law enforcement. We had uh, there people there at their home, meaning think about the logic of that. Right. Yes, they broke the law in the past when there weren't uh, law enforcement protecting the justice system. And yes, they're breaking the law in the present while there is protection. There were still mobbing there. But therefore, because they're not going to be effective in storming the judge's home, I didn't think it was necessary to charge him with anything. Basically, what he said. He, he also he also kind of made it the a duty of the U.S. Marshal Service. Andy McCarthy had written about this. You know, oh, well, the marshals were there. It's like their responsibility. No, it's not. It's your responsibility it's to have federal to prosecute. Think about the logic. They don't prosecute. Yeah. The marshals don't prosecute. The, but but Merrick Garland too busy. Well, prosecuting it's like a bank. It's, it's like a bank robber who's gone in and robbed a bank once and got away with it. And then he's gone in another time and he's walking around the bank and he's going to rob it. But now he sees there's a policeman guarding it and we can't arrest him because the bank is no longer endangered because now it has guards. But the person who in the past robbed the bank and wants to rob it in the present, we're not going to indict. That's his logic, right? That if you've committed a crime in the past and you want to criminal commit a crime in the present and that's why you're there according to the statute but you can't pull it off and endanger the justices lives or get on their lawn now or get in their sidewalk and scream or because there's federal marshal we didn't indict it's almost as ridiculous as merrick garland telling us that he only goes after pro-life people because uh, i guess they're stupid enough to protest at abortion centers during the daytime but the right. real deal are the pro-lifers who bomb and attack and graffiti and destroy at night and apparently merrick garland is saying to us that law enforcement's go to bed at sundown right they just don't want to work at night <laughs> and i just thought you idiot. You're telling me that most crimes of any sort in the United States take place between nine to five right. and law enforcement can't enforce it. Does he ever understand anything about the classical <laughs> the classical connection between nocturnal <laughs> right. and thievery? I mean, come on. Gosh, That's when so... crime does take place. So anyway, it's really sad. I, I, uh, you know, Stanford, I have a lot of people in my family went there, and I can tell you it's, it's shameful. And uh, it always suffered from an arrogance. And people who went there never in California never let you forget about it. Right. But an arrogance and and wealth. And as I said before, nothing was more striking to me right after George Floyd to come on campus and see two guys in flip-flops get out of a BMW convertible with BLM stickers on the bumper but that's who that's what 
is the contradiction about Stanford. It's a rite of passage for wealthy people. It always was that they indulge in, you know, innocent, stupid, little liberal, hard left stuff. And then they get into the corporate and legal and media, big money, or their parents take care of them. Well, Victor, it's not now. It's not now, Jack. It's a hardcore Marxist training ground. Yeah. Well, a lot of those wealthy people uh, who uh, love Stanford and brandish the brand uh, probably have a significant amount of their money at Silicon Valley Bank, which seems to be collapsing. And we will get your thoughts on that on uh, and some of the reaction to that by Fang Fang's friend, uh, Eric Swalwell, and others, other topics. And we'll get to that, Victor, right after this important message. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Again, this particular podcast is up on justthenews.com and other platforms. I want to encourage our listeners, especially if you're a new listener, to visit victorhanson.com. That's Victor's official website. And you will discover there are certain articles, and everything Victor writes is put up there, and all his appearances. There are links to uh, these podcasts, of course, and other podcasts, other uh, Victor's on other radio uh, programs. But you will not be able to read certain pieces by Victor because they are exclusive. They're called ultra articles, and you need to subscribe in order to read them. It's five bucks to get in the door. 50 discounted to $50 a year. There's a, a, an awful lot of uh, original material there. So if you love what Victor writes, uh, you, you you really should be subscribing. So that's victorhanson.com and subscribe to, to Ultra. By the way, Victor has a piece, an Ultra piece up now. They're not all about politics and policy, but some of the more wonderful pieces, I think, are about Victor's own life on the farm and growing up. And there's a great piece that you've just put up, Victor, called Neighborly Theft. And it's about um, Howard, an adjacent farm owner to your farm, and a man who borrowed a lot and maybe even stole some some things all seem to have a hankering to uh to pick the pears off your off your trees but it's a beautiful piece <laughs> it's beautiful and you can't read it unless you subscribe so that's victorhanson.com victor um yeah the silicon valley bank um where which is home to a, a lot of uh, palo alto area venture capital they don't call it silicon valley bank for nothing uh, had its trading um, suspended because it, it was there was a run on the bank, essentially a run on the bank. Um, Gary, the Greg Becker, excuse me, he's the uh, CEO of the bank, and I'm getting these. You know, this is an article. I'm not going to read it, but it's a link from Daily Mail, which I I check out several times a day. He uh, in 20. 
15, I believe, successfully lobbied Congress to get reduced standards of scrutiny on the bank um, because it was so, you know, where it is, is so low risk. Don't apply those standards to us that you apply to other banks after the 2008 uh, banking fiasco and collapse. And and he he succeeded. And this bank, I think, is the 14th biggest in the nation. Uh, soon to soon to be. I don't even know if it's going to be a bank anymore. I'm trying to sell it. So, Victor, we have this. Yeah, run I mean, on the I mean, bank, I think, and it's and it's a lot so, of that leftist money is in there. I I don't want to be there to it's be not just money, bank, Jack. But. I think three to. I think there was only three to five percent that had less than two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand that were covered. I mean, think of that. That the depositors, ninety seven percent, had over two hundred fifty thousand in the bank. Right. So that's the subtext of all this, that these are the right people and they have a lot of money in there and they're facing a lot of losses and they put Joe Biden in the White House and they want to know where the protection is beyond the $250,000. And it's it'll come, but I, I'm just for just as initial observation, it's not to do with banks, but I can remember in 1983, I wrote about in Fields Out Dream, Sunmade Raisin Cooperative collapsed. I don't know if people know that. It collapsed with 27 million. That was a lot in those days, shortfall. It collapsed because the cooperative was not accurately returning to the raisin members what they thought they earned. In other words, it was being poorly run and the market itself was collapsing. But to keep the members in the cooperative and not have them go out to more competitive and better run small independent packers, they paid them money that they did not earn. The co-op didn't earn. They were borrowing. And then when it collapsed, they had about $27 million collapse. But every single small farmer also had something called capital retain, which means they deducted a, a sizable percentage of your crop and they put it in a rotating fund. So you put it in for seven years before you got any of it. And that was to capitalize expansion. And so they just took that, Jack to write off the $27 million. They not only took that, they said to the independent growers, well, you got too much anyway. And so we're just taking your own money that was in here to pay for what you got. And think of the logic. We ran this thing into the ground, and you would have all have left if you had known what a terrible job I, the guy's name was Frank Light, had been doing. But we couldn't tell you that because then you would leave and destroy my co-op, your co-op, my co-op. So what we did was we kept paying you out what you would have got if you'd sold your raisins out where, elsewhere, even though we didn't have the money. So we borrowed it. And now they're calling in the loan and we don't have any money. So we're taking your money in the capital retain. And my family was $87,000. We never got it. We we all sued. I think I, we got $9,000. And that, they owed us, still owe us $79,000. They'll never pay. Right. And my point is well, things she, like that happen in America all the time. Right. With all the time, these collapses and the people get nothing. And this is right in the heart of Silicon Valley. This was the go-to bank for startups. And right. that's number one to keep in mind. And number two, I think you're going to see more of this because Joe Biden printed $5 trillion. 
and the, the the debt is now $33 trillion. And in his new proposals, even though we have a trillion dollars more in revenue because of his tax hikes and because the economy is recovering from the lockdown, even though that, it's going to be wiped out by more and more spending. So the left keeps thinking, according to modern monetary theory, you can keep spending, spending, borrowing, borrowing. And what's happening is a lot of these banks uh, gave loans out. And we all know, I have a son who was a very astute buyer. He went out and bought a beautiful home at 2.9 interest, right? That's a 30-year interest. Right. And uh, the bank is only getting 2.9, but the inflation right now is 7%. Right. The question is, there's millions of people with those cheap interest. There's also millions of municipal municipal, municipal concerns that have 1.8 bonds. I think I own some bonds, uh, I don't know, $20,000 at 1.5 I took out. So they have a lot of bonds out there that they are committed to holding, I guess, at very low interest rates. And so when people want to go into that deposit and put money in there, they expect, what do you get now, 5%? I think 5 or 6%? No, you get 4% on a 30, I mean, a two-year bond or something, I mean, a two-year deposit. But my point is that to get people to put money in the bank, they have to pay a interest rate that right. is going to cost them a lot of money because their income is not very much because they're getting the interest income yeah. from cheap mortgages that they issue. And right. depending on the bank, uh, it's going to be very difficult. There's not going to be a lot of banks that dif- different from this one, I think. And this one made an error because they announced, apparently, that they were going to hold on to all of these low-interest bonds and, that they had issued. And they weren't going to just take a one-time hit and buy them out, right, and then reissue them at a, a higher interest rate. And some people got scared and then... I, I guess a bank has what five or six percent of the money on hand that they owe, and then they just started swarming it. Right, they actually, it was right out of uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." It's a Wonderful Life, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know. The money's in this house, in that house, right? Yeah, and then that's where it is, right? And everybody thinks they're postmodern and they're sophisticated, and we live in 2023, and we just don't do that. Right, we don't go act like you know. Yeah. Those people in Wonderful Life, where there's no Sidney Green, uh, you know, what's his name? Lionel Barrymore Jr. Right. Mr. Potter. Right. Mr. Potter and Potterville. That doesn't happen anymore. And we're sophisticated. No, it's human nature is fixed across time and space. And people are subject to the same panic. And Mr. Swalwell looks at his Bay Area district and This is another thing that I think all of our listeners have to realize. This is more important than if another normal bank in Fresno had gone under. I'll tell you why. That this state economy gets income tax revenue from 1% of the households. 1% pay about 52% of all of California income tax, number one, and they are leaving in droves. Number two, we have imported over five to 10 million illegal aliens. And if you look at the Medi-Cal budget alone, it is massive. 
massive. In my little area, the Madera Community Hospital just declared bankruptcy. And why is that? Because the renumerations come from the state and the federal government too late and in too little uh, and of too little value to cover the enormous health uh, expenses that are required to give you know twenty first twenty first century health care to people who walk across the border from Oaxaca State. It's very hard to do. It's a very noble thing to do. It's necessary. It's humanitarian, but somebody's got to pay for it. So what I'm getting is California's economy is very fragile. The high-earned upper middle class that pays half the income tax is leaving. The other middle class is leaving. They've got billions of dollars off the books in a black market economy, Jack. I can get in my car, as I said earlier, and go down to an intersection two miles away. I can buy clothes. I can buy food. I can buy milkshakes. I can buy rakes. I can buy bikes. From any of these places. And I will have one thing in common. I will pay no sales tax. Right. I can go to a big swap swap meet two miles on a Sunday morning and the same thing. I will pay no sales tax. So they have enormous underground economy that they can't tax. And they can't tax because if they do, the San Francisco Chronicle or the LA Times will say right. state focusing on though on marginalized people community. Communities of poor asked to burden the tax, you know, shoulder the burden. Right. And then in addition to this, we're sending back $60 billion to Mexico in remittances. Half of all illegal aliens live in California. I don't know if that ratio stands up, but in theory, it could be $30 billion are leaving the state and going back to Mexico and Central America per year. Right. And that is possible because the state is providing medical services and legal services and food services and shelter entitlements to subsidize a person to send three or $400 a month back to Mexico. So what I'm getting at is when you destroy the middle class and the upper middle class and you either drive them out or you have an underground economy and you bring in millions of poor people, who don't pay income tax and don't pay sales tax in some cases, then you've got to rely on Silicon Valley, $9 trillion in market capitalization. In other words, it's a big suction from the entire globe. It brings in that $9 trillion worth of value from Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, China. China. But if, if you tamper with that, and we are tampering with it, it's laying off millions of employees. We know that Twitter was just terribly run before Elon Musk. It wasn't, right. um, it's probably worth $2 billion at most, not what Elon Musk oh. paid for. And right. Facebook, they're laying off thousands of employees, thousands. And if you get a bank there that served as the bank to go for startups and it's right. now broke, and you've destroyed the confidence of the depositors in the, in that type of bank, and you're st- you're still having people send billions out of the United States from California, and the federal government itself is uh, running billion, excuse me, trillion to trillion two debts, one point five trillion I think annual deficit, and we own thirty three trillion. I don't see somebody tell me where the solution comes from. 
I don't know. Who's a sober and judicious politician who says this can't go on or what can't go on won't go on? Quote Herb Stein. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's a it's kind of a 1929 warning of what could come. And so they have to the Fed's going to have to come in and guarantee Swalwell thinks all the money that's lost. And if it doesn't come in, then people will not have confidence in the banking system of that sort. So they'll take their money out and they'll put it in Citibank, Bank of America, something that has a better reputation. But but again, Victor, the Biden economy. One last thing, the Biden economy that Joe Biden just bragged about. He just gave a speech and he said he's done more to he's done more to address climate change than any president in history. And he did that by lowering your heating and cooling bills in your home, even though your natural gas has gone up 27 percent, your electricity has gone up 12 percent. But he lies. But when you have a president like that and you have an economy like this, where are you going to put your money? Because you're now raging at, uh, I think the March is going to, uh, the March inflation rate, we're going to find out next week. Mm-hmm. It went from 9.1 to, in February, down to 6.4. I think it's going to go back up to 8.5. I don't think we're near out of this. So he's we're going to have stagflation where we're going to soon have massive layoffs, a slowing of GDP, lowering this high inflation. And where do you put your money? Well, you have three choices. You can put it in the stock market. The Dow took a big hit because of this, and it's not performing. Anybody look at your 401k, it's not very encouraging. Or you can go into real estate, and those people who know how to do it will make money, no doubt, but uh, it's falling nationwide. And I suppose if you already have money, it's a good time to buy and then sell later. But it was an overheated, inflationary, expansionary market, way overpriced. And now the interest rates on 30-year homes are down to or up to 7.1, and nobody's buying homes. They can't afford it. So the price is crashing. And maybe you can put it in a bank, huh, and get your... 4% 4% on a passbook account if you keep it in there for six months while you're losing 3% to inflation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's seven. It's not very good. And a lot of people know that. And they're doing risky, risky things. Or, Victor, you could put this back to the point you made earlier and, and uh, bouncing off of Swalwell, who's been tweeting, you know, every all the assets should be covered over. To, but and people commenting on his his tweets of like well why the hell should i pay for it? why the hell should america other americans pay for the people in this bank you know you could invest in a small business as opposed to just land or put money in a bank or or even the reason gold. that you should pay jack is the same reason the same reason during the covid lockdown if you had a small shoe store or florist shop where right. one person came in every 10 minutes that you knew you were deemed a health hazard and you had to shut down. If you were Walmart or target and you sold shoes or flowers and there was 500 people masked in your store, that was okay. That was safe. Right. And that's how the federal government's bureaucracy worked. And the ethos. 
It's absurd. Uh, you know, my asset in, in a small business is is uh, can go poof, but but somebody with uh, two million dollars in in Silicon Valley Bank has to be two. covered. That would be nothing. Two uh, yeah. <laughs> small potatoes. Yeah. Ten, fifteen million. Uh, yeah. And so there's you're talking about a lot of money, but yeah. Swalwell is very worried for a couple of reasons. These are his donors. These are the right. people who give money to him, and they have called him up. And said, listen, Eric, you idiot. I don't give a damn about Fang Fang. All I want you to do is start making some calls and making sure that Biden, whom I gave to, guarantees my $4 million that I lost, or I'm never going to give another penny to you people. And he's getting a lot of those calls. Yeah. Is he and the so- congressman, by the way, for the uh, for Palo Alto? No, he's up near... Uh, the Livermore corridor on 580. Um, okay. And he's it's he's the bedroom community on Fort, some right. of the more the, the more distant uh the more distant BART stations. Right. So he's about 45 miles. It's a very affluent. He's he's from a very 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 affluent area of um you know I'm pre- I don't have the map. I don't know exactly. Right. Well, you know, the, I don't know the that there's not a non-affluent area around there, Victor. The whole, but it's that area in uh, when you go over the Altamont Pass and you go to Livermore, then you go. There's Pleasanton right there, and then you can go up on 680 to Dublin. I think the next one is San Ramon, Danville, okay. Walnut Creek. There's that yeah. famous Blackhawk exclusive area. That's one of the wealthiest areas in the Bay Area. Yeah. A lot of Silicon Valley people live there. Well, Victor, that's all discouraging. And th- this, your commentary here and on previous podcasts, like we are, we are on a looking over the brink of some sort of civilizational abyss. Um, and this is the economic aspect of it. Well, we have time for one more topic, and that's our old friend Anthony. Fauci, and we'll get to that, Victor, right after this, <laughs> right after this final message. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I need to make a little plug for myself, Jack Fowler. I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter published by uh, the Center for Civil Society at, at Amphil, where we are. Uh, we try diligently to strengthen civil society. It's totally free. We don't sell your name. And what do you get when you subscribe? I, I try to come up with 12 to 14 interesting articles I've come across that week. Here's a link. Here's an excerpt. I think you'll like it. You're intelligent. It's not transactional. It's civil thoughts. Go to civilthoughts.com, sign up. I think you'll like it. So, Victor, a um, couple things happened on the Hill this week, and we don't maybe on the next podcast we could like Elise Stefanik going, you know, grappling with FBI uh, Director Chris Ray. Um, but we 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 had the t- um, uh, the uh, congressional hearings with Matt Taibbi about um, uh, Twitter files, but we also had uh, Robert Redfield, who's the former head of the CDC. Uh, who was up on uh, Capitol Hill, and he now let me just get this in 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 front of me. He he said, um, well, let me just I'll just paraphrase. Look, he went up and he said essentially, I was shut out of meetings. I did not agree with this 
this monopolist position that uh, that that Fauci and others had had formulated at the not at the very very origin of the of the of co- the COVID pandemic, but sh- well, early the early first thing, and uh, the, 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 we could not say that this came from the Wuhan lab. I disagreed with that. I was deliberately kept kept out of meetings because I would express the sentiment that maybe it did come out of the Wuhan lab. He said this on uh, at the congressional hearing and Fauci was on Fox. I got to give him credit for going on Fox, but he was with Neil Cavuto. And he, he said, absolutely a lie. You know, that, that, that wasn't true. Uh, he, he did not keep uh, Redfield, but, but I think it's pretty amongst the many other things that are coming out slow. So bing, bing, one after another, incriminating Anthony Fauci uh, for knowing knowing what, what the cause was and ruining careers and preventing the rest of America from finding out uh, uh, that this was a uh, not only that came from Wuhan, but it came with money funded, the taxpayer money that Anthony Fauci spent in violation of, of rules pro- prohibiting such. So, Victor, we've gone over this t- terrain before, but this is the most recent. Yeah, I think uh, I think his biggest problem is that um, if a Joe Manchin or a Cinema somebody wanted to censor him, if they could get a majority in Senate, because he outright lied to when he remember when he was questioned by Rand Paul, he said that right. I think it was the NIH. He said it it did not. It never had funded gain of research gain-of-function research in Wuhan. That's a lie. And he said that while under oath. And I think a, a lot of people are going to go after him. But what he's really angry about is that, you know, Dr. Robert Redfield, I mean, my God, he's the director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And he gets up there and very, he wasn't, I mean, unlike Fauci, he was not combative. He was philosophical. And this is the guy they've turned on, Jack. Collins... Francis Collins and Fauci, everybody has turned on him because he right. he always said there was a possibility that it came from the lab. And what he did, and I watched the testimony, and matter of fact, it wasn't very emotional. He just They just kind of said, yep. They said, well, when Anthony Fauci was communicating with Francis Collins, was there a worry, a perceptible worry that uh, – information would come out that they had a role in uh, sending via Echo Health money for gain-of-function research. Yep, yeah, that, that that's true. Later, when uh, Dr. Fauci quoted a scientific paper that suggested that that was, that there was no lab leak, that that came in part uh because, or should say in totality from an animal, did he have anything to do with that paper? Yep. Did he help commission the paper? Yep. Did he participate or or edit or look at it? Yep. So in other words, Dr. Fauci was quoting as the definitive analysis of the origins of the Wuhan lab leak to prove that it wasn't the Wuhan lab leak, it was a natural transmission, but he didn't tell us that he himself had commissioned that study in the same fashion that we learned that Peter Daszak had helped get a group of scientists 
to go to Lancet and run a quote-unquote investigation. They went over to China. They were completely stonewalled, which didn't bother them a bit. They came back and said it was a, it was not a lab leak. And now we know pretty much, according to the Department of Energy and the FBI, it was a lab leak. So this raises the question, were people like Collins and Fauci and Daszak terrified because they were subsidizing, in the case of Daszak, actually participating in gain-of-function research that was illegal in the United States. And they deliberately circumvented U.S. law stealthily and funded this type of research in a very insecure French-built Wuhan 4 lab that very quickly came under the control of the People's Liberation Army. And that virus was engineered in part with U.S. expertise and subsidies. And therefore, did the million people who died in the United States, in some way, can that be traced back to the laxity and poor judgment of Anthony Fauci? That's what this is all about. And it looks increasingly as if that it would be true. And I think that's why Fauci does not look very well. I mean, he's over 80, he's going to retire, but he's not the confident, cocky person that used to to interview him in his study with his little bubble heads, replicate uh, renditions of himself and the posters on the wall and the paintings of him. Remember all that? Yeah, Yeah, it's one of the more narcissistic uh, rooms in America. Yeah, Yeah, he's trying to find a sympathetic voice, Neil Cavuto, kind of a never-Trumper, kind of a... Uh, I've been on his show. He's a very fair guy, but he thinks Fauci thinks that this will be a sympathetic. Uh, I don't think Cavuto will be sympathetic, but he's on there. He's going to all of the um, networks, hinting, hinting that Redfield is wrong and that's unfair. If you want to read uh, "A Plague Upon Our House" by Scott Atlas, he pretty much laid it out that Fauci was wrong. And then the other part of the story is, and the other people have picked it up. There's actually two parts, Jack. The first is that not only did he commission a study and participate in the shadows upon its uh, completion, and not only did he then he referenced that as self exculpatory to himself in a very unethical fashion. He he not only did that, but there's been charges that if you, I don't know how many it is, 50, 60 billion dollars, if you had a research lab in the United States and you wanted to be funded via Anthony Fauci, then you were going to have to adopt the Wuhan uh, pangolin dash bat story, or you wouldn't be funded. In other words, he was using the money of the American taxpayer to further his own personal ambition. And that's very deadly. The other thing was even more, uh, Stephen Quay, whom we had on, uh, I had interviewed, and I think I'm going to interview him again this month. He said in a series of interviews that not only was this gain of function but that it was gain of function about an engineered virus that must have been interrupted before completion and had a lethality rate in retrospect of about 1% of the infected. Mm -hmm. However, there was some indication of the genome sequence and what we had learned before. There was a complete news blackout and what the expertise the Chinese had acquired might seem... uh, would give them the possibility to go further that they were working on viruses that could 
kill 10% of those infected, which he said at that point, you're looking at Armageddon. If 10% of an infection can kill, and even 30%, and that would be in bioweapon territory. So there's some life and death questions in all of this. Right. And all Anthony Fauci has to do is get off the National Institute for uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases with his incestuous relationship with the National Institute of Health and the CDC, the new directors, and Francis Collins, who's retired. And once he's retired, Jack, guess what? He will not be the arbiter of these federal grants. And every independent researcher will speak his mind, especially if they have a feeling that uh, there's going to be a change in administrations in two years. And so I think, I don't want to see any, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not unhappy that he did so much damage because a million people died. And in some ways he was culpable, not just right. from his bad advice and misleading statements about the lockdown and masks, especially about the ironclad uh, immunity of the uh, mRNA vaccinations. But uh, he did if this is true, and I think it is, that he participated in a type of research that was too dangerous to perform and then was undertaken by the, our worst enemies in communist China. Right. And, and he's he's culpable. And when he's no longer, he's kind of like, I guess the image everybody should keep in mind is he's riding a tiger right now. And the tiger is a furious truth. And right. as long as he's on the saddle, he can suppress that truth because he has financial leverage over the people who have the expertise and capability to tell us what the truth is, but won't right. because they feel that that tiger, you know, is controlled by him. But once he gets off, that tiger is going to maul him and it's going, the truth is, and right. it's going to be a bad, bad situation. Yeah. Victor, others, I, by the way, it, it, it's not, it's bad to fund the research, but the, as you've discussed in the past, the research itself as a thing that you would engage in gain of function is is so Frankensteinian or Stinian, uh, it's immoral. Well, they it's they ask a lot of the yeah they ask a lot of the they ask Mr. Redfield and they've asked Mr. Quay a simple question: Do you know of any major breakthrough in virology that has come? Uh, from gain and function research, and they couldn't cite any. And then Fauci was on all the airways. Well, so you got that uh, flu vaccination? That was gain and function. Well, is that is that scientifically proved? Or are we supposed to believe you once again? Right. But it doesn't seem to me that it's very smart to let all of these labs all over the world that don't have uh, the protections that we used to have, and I don't know if we do anymore because we're destroying our own meritocracy, but to allow people to tamper with them. All it takes is some Iranian agent, you know, to go into somewhere and kidnap somebody in, right. I don't know, Thailand or or former Soviet Republic, bring them back to Iran, put a gun to their head and say, we're going to kill your family. I want you to make this virus. And then I want you to make a vaccination for this virus yeah. and then unleash it. And that's what we're headed to. Thanks to people like this. So yeah, the science. So is, yeah. So arrogant. <laughs> I am the science, all the people's lives that he destroyed. I mean, he destroyed 
a lot of other scientists' lives. He ridiculed them. He made fun of Jay Bacharya and the Great Barrington Declaration. They went after them. He went. They, he was involved in the Twitter suppression of any story he felt was hostile to the narrative. He was wrong on everything. He should have been fired. Donald Trump should have fired him a long time ago. That's my yeah. only criticism, really, of Donald Trump has been appointments. He appointed people, and I understand that he was not a politician, and I understand the bipartisan Washington swamp tried to drown him when he came in. I understand how all about the Mueller invest, all the terrible things they did to him. But it was not just appointing people like Omarosa and Scaramucci and all those people. It was not firing right away. The yeah. first day, James Comey. It was not firing earlier Andrew McCabe. It was not firing Christopher Ray. It was not firing Mark Milley. It was not firing Anthony Fauci and Burks and Collins. He should yeah. have fired them all. Yeah, for a guy whose popular TV show ended with "You're fired," it's kind of kind of hot as president. He did he did not do that himself. Well, Victor. Um, Shared a lot today, uh, as usual, brilliance. I appreciate it immensely. Our listeners, uh, almost to a person, thrilled to you, to what you say. The, according to the reviews we get, again, on on uh, Apple and iTunes, you can rate the show zero to five stars, and nearly everyone gives Victor five stars. We thank those who do that, and some people leave comments. We read them all take them to heart, especially the ones that say shut up, Fowler. But here's one that I'd like to share uh, from Mrs. Cochise, a veteran of the U.S. Army, Cochise on the warpath, who who I think we read a comment from her early on uh, a couple of years ago on this podcast. But she it's titled A Long Main Winter with Victor Davis Hanson. And this is well, this looks like it's maybe Miss, Mr. Cochise. Victor, my wife and I now in our late 60s. These live in one of the farthest northeast townships in the state of Maine. So no surprise, the winter can be rather harsh, unpredictable, and long. Unfortunately, this winter has been a real doozy. Next to that, wisely chosen, neatly stacked extra cord of split firewood. You and Jack and Sammy have helped make this winter a little milder. Many nights sitting in front of the, front of the wood stove, yellow labs at our feet, and a bowl of my wife's Many excellent soups and chowders. Listening to this podcast has made this old couple's evenings quite special. And we thought you all should know that from your number one fans from the great state of Maine. May God forever bless you all. The, the Cochises. Very so, nice. Uh, yeah, it's very sweet. Very, very sweet. And there's a lot more of you than you think. Yeah. Remember, remember that. I was on the yeah. plane and a couple people came in up to me and wanted to talk about the podcast. And that's what they said. They said, but they said it in a different way. They said, there's a lot more of us, us than you think. And we're going to have a reckoning. And I think if we can get the balloting straightened out in 2024, um, this woke thing is on the decline. It really is. People are sick of it. And did all anyone the damage tell you to, destruction. Yeah, did anyone Excuse tell me, you Jack. to be, go ahead, Victor. No, you go ahead. I was just going to ask you, I was, uh, did anyone ask you to be nicer to Sammy? I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> it has oh, come up before. Uh, I, was, I was in the Dallas airport, I must confess. 
and uh, a woman a little bit older than I am came up and said, I like your podcast, but have you noticed something about poor Sammy? And I said, oh, no, here it comes. She says, she always has to say, can I, can I, can I be allowed to say something? <laughs> I said, that's a ruse. Come on. And she said, no, no, you just crush Sammy when she asks questions and she's trying to help you. Just don't. I said, she's free to ask anything she wants. I don't even know what she's going to want. I don't prepare. She just does it. Yeah. So and she, gets to do, she has a blank check. Sammy does. But I don't know how this got started. But <laughs> I'm somehow crushing portal Sammy. Sammy's the, Sammy's great. You and Sammy do great, great podcasts. So, hey, Victor, thanks so much. Thanks to all who listened. And we will be we will be back soon with yet another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 